Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 94, Becoming Gods, Divinization and Angelomorphic Transformation in Clement of Alexandria. In this, our final episode on Clement, we're going to look at Clement's endgame. Let's say you die as a good Gnostic Christian. What happens next? Now, this is an interesting question, but there is an even more intriguing, more esoteric question to ask. What happens if you're a good Gnostic Christian and you live and achieve the highest form of Gnosis? What happens then? As we shall see, this question is among the most esoteric questions we can ask about Clement. And by that I mean, this is one of the matters which he surrounds with the greatest amount of circumspection. You have to do what the Stromate says and read very carefully, taking half a quote from here and sticking it onto another half a quote from over there, and then considering this doctrinal statement you've excavated alongside evidence from the Eclogai Propheticae and the excerpts of Theodotus, and try to see if any patterns emerge. So this is the question for this episode. What is the end game? And the subsidiary question is, do you need to die to achieve this end game? Let's get into it. So there are a few different ways in which Clement approaches this endgame business. All of them, we hasten to say, based either in commonly accepted as canonical Christian scriptural texts, or in what we think must have been oral Jewish Christian teachings, which he received somehow or other, possibly through the elders of the church that he likes to talk about. One way he approaches this endgame is by talking about becoming like an angel, or becoming like God, or even becoming a god. Another is seeing God face to face, a direct encounter with the deity which would seem to contradict what we learned of the strong separation drawn by Clement between God the Father and his creation in the last episode, but which nevertheless is there both in the scriptures and in Clement. We then have Clement's angelic or spiritual hierarchy, which combines Platonist and Second Temple Jewish ideas about spirits, immaterial beings, in an interesting synthesis. The question here is, vis-a-vis endgames, how do humans negotiate or perhaps take part in this hierarchy of angels, archangels, prototists, and the logos? This question leads naturally to that of Clement's doctrine of apocatastasis, the renewal of the universe by God into a better purified form, and whether Clement takes the proto-Orthodox view of this event, that it will happen in the future once Christ has returned and God raises the dead and all that good stuff that we know about Christian eschatology, or can it somehow be seen as an ongoing process in which human beings play a part now, or rather in the second century? So let's begin with becoming a god, or becoming like god, And the background here is very important to understand what Clement is on about. There was very strong language of acquiring godlike characteristics in the post-Platonic traditional religious and philosophic worlds. We say post-Platonic here because Plato put forth some of the classic, if not the most seminal, statements concerning deification. And these were very influential on many thinkers in the later Western esoteric traditions in one way or another. So in the Theaetetus, of course, 
we find the famous passage arguing that assimilation to God, or becoming like God, homoiosis theo, insofar as possible, is the goal of the philosopher. A passage in the Laws, Plato's final dialogue, also sets out an agenda of divinization, but this time it's a post-mortem divinization, following the same type of otherworldly terrain as we saw in The Myth of Ur from the Republic, see episodes 29 to 31 of the podcast, Plato's Athenian stranger in the Laws, because there's no Socrates in the Laws, it's a mysterious Athenian doing most of the talking, the Athenian stranger tells us about what happens after death. Quote, when a soul mingles with the excellence that comes from God and takes on, to an exceptional degree, a similar nature, it moves likewise to an exceptional locality, traveling the holy road to another and better locality. End of quote. So we're in the territory familiar from Orphism, the myth of Ur, and other Greek approaches to the afterlife, of an underworld with multiple branching paths, depending on how you lived, you go down this or that path and you end up in better or worse places. And the holy road, of course, is a reference to the sacred way that led to the Eleusinian sanctuary. So the mystery cults are being evoked here, which also promised a better fate in the afterlife to their initiates. Now, these two different approaches to assimilation to God will, of course, also have been read by Platonists alongside Plato's theories about metempsychosis. These can be read well into this reincarnationist agenda. A better place in the afterlife can easily be seen as a mythic description for a better reincarnation, perhaps as a philosopher or what have you. And likewise, worse places could perhaps indicate reincarnation as animals and things like that. And the best place for many Platonists is an escape from the cycle of reincarnation altogether and an eternal dwelling in the noetic realm with the gods. Okay, so far so good. This is the basic platonic legacy concerning deification. As far as possible when we are still alive, or in a different way when we die. Now, the insofar as possible part shows that Plato himself perhaps envisioned this process not so much as a transcendence of our mortal state, but rather its refinement or elevation to the highest degree of excellence possible for a human. However, some later Platonists gradually forgot about the as far as possible part and just simply say we are to become gods full stop or we are to realize our innate godhood but this takes us ahead to plotinus and we're still talking about clement the point here is that these platonic passages are part of the intellectual background of clement as are the middle platonist reception of these passages out of which had arisen a number of theories about divinization both while alive and after death in Apuleius, for example, whom we met in episodes 73 and 74, divinization is a fairly modest affair and really happens after death. Quote, For the soul of the sage, freed from the bonds of the body, goes back to the gods, and for the merit of having led a very pure and self-controlled life, conforms herself through this very activity to the condition of the gods. This is a representative example of Middle Platonist post-mortem deification. Plutarch's eschatological myths, which we discussed in episode 69, are another example. In both cases, and this is obvious when you think about it, becoming godlike has as a first step separation of the soul from the body. And death, of course, is 
always a separation of the soul from the body. But as we also know, Platonist philosophers are also concerned to separate themselves from the body while alive. If we turn to the Hermetic text, the Poimandris, which, while it may date sometime later than Clement, or it might not, can nevertheless be contextualized within the same basic Middle Platonist approach as Clement's Christianity, in the Poimandris we seem to have a description of deification occurring within the lifetime of the Hermetic practitioner who has achieved Gnosis. Quote, Having become powers, they are in God. This is the best end for those having Gnosis, to be deified. End of quote. Obviously, we'll return to that later on in the podcast. So, Plato, Middle Platonist philosophy, and a Middle Platonizing religious movement from Egypt all agree that the human being can be assimilated in some way to God or to a godlike state of some kind. So far, so good. What about Christianity? In proto-Orthodox Christianity, we do indeed have the language of deification, but we also have a very strong tendency to separate God from his creation, something we've already encountered in the last episode. The two tendencies are always in dialogue in Christianity. Christians like the Valentinians or the Sethians both increased the distance between the highest God and humanity, while also and maybe paradoxically, making humans closer to God because humans are sort of sparks of the divine trapped in the cosmos. As we know, proto-Orthodoxy had real problems with this approach, and later Orthodoxy will just reject it utterly. So humans are created beings. They have nothing in common with God, even though they're made in his image. They're, um, they're not sparks of the divine or anything like that. But Christianity has always had a kind of fatal attraction to this idea as well. After all, these so-called Gnostic heretics were Christians, and if we turn to the Bible, the agreed-upon canon, we have some problematic statements for anyone wanting to separate humans utterly from the divine. To take one example, there is the passage in the Psalms which reads, They are all gods and sons of the highest. Now, we seem to have, no, we do have, a reference here to multiple gods. Christians read this passage as a reference to the angels, and this is probably what it was meant to be, although the psalmist's idea of what an angel was will have been very different from Greco-Roman Christian ideas. And Christians reading this generally took the whole polytheistic language of it as a metaphor. The angels are like God in some way, hence they are gods, metaphorically, but of course there is only one God. Still, the language here sets a precedent. It's okay to talk about gods in a Christian context, or at least you have scriptural precedents for doing so. Then we have, in all three Synoptic Gospels, Jesus quoted as saying, and here we're going to quote Matthew, but Mark and Luke say more or less the same thing, quote, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels in heaven, end of quote. That is, human beings in the afterlife transcend their mortal status and become angelic in some way. And this includes becoming sexless, seemingly. These three, count them, three statements from the mouth of Christ himself in three different Gospels are foundational for Christian thought on the post-mortem fate of humans, or at least saved humans. They become like angels. Irenaeus, our favorite heresiologist and the gold standard of proto-orthodoxy in the second century, goes so far as to say that deceased humans become noeric spirits, pneumata norera. This is a rather philosophical, in fact, way of approaching this, but he's basically saying 
They are intelligent spiritual beings. Heavy stuff. The point here, for our purposes, is that putting aside for the moment this talk of spirit, which is very unplatonist, aside from that, one could read this statement from a founder of Orthodox Christianity as being something pretty similar to what Plato's Athenian is arguing in the laws. After we die, we go to a better place where we are made more like God. Actually, we become minor gods, stroke spirits, stroke angels, stroke noeric spirits, stroke logoi. Take your pick. The language changes a lot, but we do see a pattern here. Lots of differences across the different spiritual movements of the second century, but also a certain structural parallel. And I think it's useful to point out two major approaches here for the sake of organizing our thought. The post-mortem approach and the while-still-alive approach. It's safe to say that the orthodox position will become that all of this stuff has to be post-mortem. Hence, for example, the many attacks we find on the so-called Gnostics, who tell of ascents to God during the lifetime of the sage, as in many a Christian non-canonical apocalypse. Of course, St. Paul has an account of an ascent to the third heaven in the second letter to the Corinthians, and no one can argue against him, but he's just a special case. Nothing to see here. The Marcionites and Valentinians are heretics. Let's just move on. Now, all of the streams of influence we've been discussing here are relevant for understanding Clement's views on becoming like an angel, the encounter with God, and universal apocatastasis. So having set the backdrop, let's turn to Clement. First of all, seeing God face to face. Clement has strong scriptural authority for the idea that that's going to happen in the hereafter. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1312, the famous through a glass darkly passage. Incidentally, the Greek is blepomengar arti di esoptru en enigmati. So Paul could be read as saying through a mirror esoterically, or at least through a mirror in a riddle. I like darkly from the King James Version as it's very evocative, but in our first century Pauline context, we have to be aware that enigma is properly speaking a riddle or an esoteric form of discourse. And so Paul here is making the creation a kind of esoteric text, and we love it here at the Schwepp when God himself is an esotericist. Now, as you can imagine, Clement loves this passage. He cites it again and again. And we referred last episode to the article of Raoul Mortley, dealing specifically with Clement's exegesis of this passage from Paul's letter. Mortley's reading takes in a number of passages from the Stromates concerning this face-to-face -face encounter with God that we're going to have once we've got out of the glass-darkly phase and into the face-to-face -face phase. Looking at how Clement reads scriptural passages like 1 Corinthians 13.12, but also many others, reconceptualizes the whole thing in terms of the mysteries and progressive stages of initiation, and Mortley concludes that, quote, it is clear that Clement, like the Gnostics, envisaged a twofold form of eschatology, the first for those whose special capacity enabled them to attain the vision of God while still in the flesh, realized eschatology, and the second for those who were obliged to wait until they were removed from the flesh i.e. dead. Putting aside the very nuanced discussion which should follow here, where we consider these passages in Clement alongside the many places where he emphasizes God's 
unknowability and distance from humans and so on, we'll just say that Clement feels there is a small Gnostic elite who can encounter God face-to-face in this life. We agree with Mortley here against many scholars who do not find this doctrine in Clement. And I think the reason they don't find it is because it's an esoteric doctrine, and Clement speaks of it in a very guarded way in the Stromates. But I feel that Clement's use of the language of the mysteries here is decisive. The mysteries, used metaphorically, as we have seen again and again in the podcast, are always used to refer to attaining a better spiritual or philosophic state while alive. And Using the, the mysteries as a metaphor, of course, automatically implies a small chosen elect of initiates. These are Clement's Gnostics. There are many passages from the Stromates which can be adduced here to support such a reading, some of which will come out in the course of this episode, but see the accompanying notes to this episode for many more which we're not going to have time to mention. Now, let's talk about angels. Specifically, let's talk about angels angelomorphic pneumatology. Why, I hear a plaintive voice cry, would we want to talk about anything with so many syllables as angelomorphic pneumatology? Well, gentle listener, here's why. A scholar with the resonant name of Crispin Fletcher Lewis has coined the term angelomorphic to talk about cultural situations, quote, wherever there are signs that an individual or community possesses specifically angelic characteristics or status, though for whom identity cannot be reduced to that of an angel, end of quote. So what's he talking about? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, there are some texts which seem to indicate that these people, whoever they were exactly, believed that they could become angelic, but not exactly the same thing as an angel. Late Second Temple Judaism, especially apocalyptic texts and the Hechelot literature, see episodes 49 and beyond on this stuff, is very concerned with angels um, in many different contexts. And one of the things that can happen with angels, among many, is that humans can become angelic. Not exactly become angels, but become something like an angel. So this is angelomorphic. This is why we have this term angelomorphic, to describe this kind of transformation. This is the tradition, roughly speaking, which of course lies behind the statements in the Synoptic Gospels about becoming like an angel after the resurrection. But there are also strands of Jewish Christianity which indicate that angelomorphic transformation can occur before death. And Clement belongs to such a school of thought, as we shall see. So that's the angelomorphic part. What about the pneumatology or pneumatology? Well, pneuma is usually translated as spirit, and pneumatology would be the study or theory of the spirit. As listeners know, this is a major concern in Christianity, both because, as we saw, for example, in Basilides, Christians lay a high premium on spirit. Angels themselves are spirits. God can be described as either having a spirit or being a spirit. The spiritual is higher than the soul, as we see, for example, in the famous Valentinian division of mankind into materials, souls, and spirituals the spirituals being the highest level. And there's something called the understanding of the spirit, or spiritual understanding, in Clement, which is basically the ability to read and do exegesis exoterically correctly. The text says X, but I know it really means Y, because I'm reading it in the spirit. Okay, spirit is everywhere in Christianity. Incidentally, 
For the origins of this term's importance, at least in part, we need to look to Stoic physics. So stop in at episode 45 of the podcast if you haven't already. Now, as we've mentioned, Clement often comes across as a binitarian thinker. That is, he has God the Father and the Logos stroke Christ stroke world of forms, but where is the Holy Spirit of later Trinitarianism? He certainly has to deal with this Holy Spirit in some way because it appears in Scripture all the time, descending on John the Baptist and the apostles, working miracles, converting people to Christianity, and so forth. The Holy Spirit's everywhere in the New Testament, so he has to do something with it. Now, there's a lot of discussion here among scholars, some arguing that Clement makes the Logos identical to the Spirit, some arguing that the seven protoctists are at least functionally the Holy Spirit. Um, both positions can actually be found in the Stromates, and it's also sometimes difficult to tell the Logos and the protoctists apart. So united are they in their natures. Clement tells us in the Stromates that he's written two works entitled On Prophecy and On the Soul, which deal in detail with his pneumatology, but these do not survive. So we really don't have a definitive account of what Clement thinks the Holy Spirit is. I myself am happy to say that he is at minimum confusing in his account of what might be the Spirit of God, although the reference in his work The Pedagogue to the, quote, heptad of the Spirit, the sevenfoldness of the Spirit, is a pretty strong indicator that the seven protectists are to be associated with the Holy Spirit with a capital S. But here's the point. Clement has an entire spiritual hierarchy in which everything can and sometimes is described as a spirit. So our concern is with this hierarchy. Whatever Clement's exact conception of the highest Holy Spirit is, assuming he had one, which we could call exact, which I tend to doubt, but in the spiritual hierarchy... We start with God the Father, of course, the unknown one who, as we've seen, can also be contemplated face-to-face -face in some fashion. Then beneath the Father, we have the Son, the Logos, a.k.a. the world of forms. Clement doesn't call him the world of forms, but he is described as a sort of realm where the Gnostic can contemplate the forms, so there you go, it's the world of forms, a.k.a. sometimes the Spirit, a.k.a. Jesus in his incarnated aspect or form or instantiation. Now, I've already subordinated the Logos to the Father here, which is something Clement is cagey about, so I'm probably doing him a disservice. But what we can say at any rate, whether Clement is a subordinationist or not, his Logos certainly does fill the role of mediator between God and humanity. The Logos is also described as God's face on many occasions in the Stromates, which is probably a term arising from the so-called Enoch Metatron tradition. See Andre Orlov's book on the subject, but which anyway indicates this mediating role quite well. When, when you look at someone, you look at their face. So if you're trying to look at the unknown God, the, he has a face that you can see. It's the Logos. It's Christ. Now, ontologically, after the Logos strokes Son, we have the seven first created ones, the protoctists. These are the very high beings which Clement is most likely to call gods, but he also refers to them as spirits or the spirit, and lots of other epithets, as we'll see in the course of this episode. We then get archangels, and then angels, and then humans. Now, in Stromates 6, we read that each level of the cosmic hypercosmic hierarchy passes on its movement, kinesis, 
which is also the Greek philosophical term for change or even action in certain contexts, to the level below it. Now, lovers of Platonist cosmologies, in other words, the right sort of people, will recognize most of the classic elements of an emanationist cosmology here, albeit with personified rather Hebraic figures, personifications, instead of abstract entities like one, noose, soul, and so forth. There are also, in many places, signs that Clement is reading this spiritual hierarchy as mapped onto the cosmic topography familiar from Hellenistic astronomy astrology, as we've mentioned already. And indeed, this angelic handing down of movement from each level to the one below it is exactly how Aristotle's cosmos functions, as listeners who remember episode 40 will know. This is a fact that, as far as I'm aware, no one has really commented on, but it's quite interesting. There are a lot of levels at which one can read Clement's spiritual hierarchy. He seems to be reading it himself in precisely this multivalent way. It's metaphysical. It's also salvational, as we'll see. It's located in the actual cosmos and beyond it, and so forth, all simultaneously. Now, in reading Clement's hierarchy as a middle Platonizing emanatory metaphysics with Christian details, I'm not here underemphasizing the importance of the details. I'm just emphasizing that for a thinker like Clement who demands both a scripturally sound and metaphysically compelling world, these angelomorphic hierarchies tick both boxes. They fill the universe with the angels that the scripture tells us are all over the place, and they bridge the ontological gap between the immaterial and the material cosmos without leaving any blank spaces, which is something that Platonists do not like to do. Orthodox Christianity, of course, is happy with a big blank space. There's God, there's the creation, nothing really in between. Boom, there you go. No Platonist is at all happy with this for many metaphysical reasons, some of which will probably be at the fingertips of regular Schwepp listeners. Now, we say angelomorphic here, rather than just angelic, because the protectists themselves are not angels. They're above the angels. They are, in the prophetic eclogues of Clement, quote, the first created nature of the angels. In the Stromates, they're described as the seven firstborn rulers of the angels who have the greatest power. They are also the first metaphysical manifestation of numerical plurality. To quote the excerpts from Theodotus 10 in Jeffrey Smith's translation, quote, The ones created first, even if in number they are distinct and each is bounded and delineated, in any case the likeness of their deeds demonstrates their unity, equality, and likeness. So they're a kind of unity and multiplicity. This is something that's very familiar to um, readers of Plotinus in his descriptions of the noose and is something that it probably enters into philosophy most powerfully from the second hypothesis of Plato's dialogue, the Parmenides. Anyway, continuing with our quote, For no superiority nor inferiority was given among the seven. No progress remains for them, since from the beginning they have received perfection, at the same time as the first creation from God through the Son. So there you have the protoctists, and below them, the metaphysical and spiritual hierarchy. The question now is, how do human beings interact with this hierarchy? There are two possible answers to this question, I think, and it all really hinges on how we want to read 
the excerpts of Theodotus and the prophetic eclogues. Specifically, if certain passages are to be read as reports of Valentinian teachings or other heretical teachings which Clement doesn't support, then we are left with a somewhat ambiguous teaching, relying solely on passages from the Stromates, like from Book 4, quote, For whenever the soul has ascended beyond coming to be, she is by herself and in communion with the forms. Already having become like an angel, she will be with Christ. End of quote. So if this is a reference to the post-mortem separation of the soul from the body, it's perfectly orthodox. Okay, the understanding of being with Christ and being like an angel as being the same thing as communing with Plato's forms is a rather philosophic understanding of scripture, but we also find this sort of thing in Justin Martyr, who is not an esoteric or heretical Christian by anyone's understanding. It's not run-of-the-mill second-century Christianity, but it's nothing too shocking. Let's put it that way. But if we do look at the excerpts, particularly excerpts 27, a crucial passage, and consider them Clementine, we get a very different picture. And this and other passages in the Stromates can be read as referring to a separation of the soul and body in the Gnostic's lifetime, a Platonist philosophic ascent, which also involves becoming like an angel during the Gnostic's lifetime. Let's quote excerpts 27, the whole thing, in Smith's translation. Pretty much all scholars reckon that this passage, in fact, represents Clement's own esoteric interpretation. Except scholars don't call it esoteric, they call it allegorical, I call it esoteric, of the Jewish temple and its architecture, furniture, etc. Lilla thinks it can't be by Clement because it's Gnostic, but I think we've disposed of that non-argument pretty well in the course of the podcast. In modern scholarship, it's very much fallen by the wayside. So let's quote our passage here, which, difficult though it is to interpret, seems reliably to be the thought of Clement. Quote, when entering into the second veil, and all this veils and stuff we're talking about here are furniture of the Jewish temple, just to be clear, which Clement is reading as metaphysical allegory. When entering into the second veil, the priest set aside the plate at the incense altar. He entered in silence, having the name engraved upon his heart, displaying the putting aside of the body, which has become pure like the golden plate and bright through the purification, and which is like a setting aside of a body of the soul, from which the brightness of the piety was engraved through which he, having been enveloped in the name, was known by the principalities and the powers. He sets aside this body, the plate that had become weightless, within the second veil, in the noetic world, which is the second complete veil of the entirety, at the incense altar, with the angels who perform the prayers offered up. The soul, stripped by the power of the one who knows, such that it becomes a body of power, changes into spiritual things, becoming in essence rational and high priestly, so as to be ensouled, so to speak, directly by the word, that's the Logos, just as the archangels become the high priests of the angels, and the firstborn in turn become the high priests of the archangels. But where is the correct teaching of scripture and doctrine for that soul that has come to be pure? Where is it permitted to see God face to face? 
Therefore, after going beyond the angelic teaching and the name that is taught in Scripture, it comes to the knowledge and apprehension of the facts, no longer a bride, but now a word. That is, as an aside, it's come to the gnosis and catalepsis of the pragmaton, the facts, no longer a bride, but a logos, and takes up residence with the bridegroom, along with those first called and first born. Friends by love, children by teaching and obedience, and siblings by common origins. And so it was in the divine plan to wear the plate and to advance toward knowledge, but it was the goal of power that humanity should become the bearer of God, energized directly by the Lord, and becoming, in a sense, his body. End of quote. Now, this is a very dense passage and a wonderful bit of Clement. Whether this is meant to describe an after-resurrection event or one taking place during the Gnostic's lifetime, it's clearly laying out a kind of spiritual ascent by way of evolution. Look at the lines, quote, the soul stripped by the power of the one who knows, such that it becomes a body of power, changes into spiritual things, becoming in essence rational and high priestly, so as to be ensouled, so to speak, directly by the word just as the archangels become the high priests of the angels and the firstborn in turn become the high priests of the archangels. End of quote. This is difficult to interpret, to be sure, and it's doubtless meant to be so, but the soul is definitely being transformed into a spirit and a high priest, just like the angels, archangels, and protoctists is being, somehow being inducted into their lineage. There's a nice parallel passage, Excerpta 64, where we have a description of the soul becoming a noeric ion. Quote, Thereupon the spiritual elements that have laid aside their souls, together with the mother who escorts the groom, also escort the grooms, their angels, enter into the bridal chamber within the boundary and come to the vision of the father, becoming intellectual eternities. That's noeric ions in the intellectual and eternal marriages of the Suzdugi. Now, all this bridegrooms and Suzdugis and stuff like that is very typical of Valentinian ideas. The Valentinian afterlife included marriage to angels, which might sound rather dry as a form of marriage, but since the Valentinian angels seem to have genders, maybe things actually get quite spicy in the higher eons. At any rate, is Clement reporting his own ideas here? or Valentinian ideas, hard to say. And if he is reporting Valentinian ideas, is he reporting Valentinian ideas that he, that he thinks are perhaps of interest to non-Valentinian Christians and worthy of consideration? Or is he reporting them, as some scholars think, for a later rebuttal or attack, which he never got around to writing? We don't know. But the reference to the protoctists in the first passage we've just quoted is telling because they are definitely referred to, although obliquely, in a way which can easily escape notice, in the Stromates, and as we saw earlier, even in the Paidagogos by Clement, which is not really a particularly esoteric work. So the sevenfold first created spirit, or seven spirits, is definitely a Clementine belief. Why not then transform into them? And in the passage we just quoted, where we again see the soul being transformed, well, actually, we also see the spiritual element of the human being setting aside even the soul, 
and being escorted to the vision of the Father, becoming an intellectual Ion, which on the one hand might be seen as being Valentinian, but on the other hand isn't actually that far away from what we saw Irenaeus saying, that the soul will become a noeric spirit. All this talk of spiritual transformation brings us right to the heart of the question of spiritual practice among the Gnostics, according to Clement. Excerpts of Theodotus 63 seems to describe a cosmic ascent of the soul. Quote, the resting of the spirituals, that's the pneumaticoi, right? The highest uh, of the three levels of humanity for the Valentinians. The resting of the spirituals on the Lord's Day in the Ogdoad, which is called the Lord's Day, is with the mother wearing their souls, the garments, until the culmination. But the other faithful souls are with the Creator, but at the culmination, they also go up into the Ogdoad. Then the marriage feast shared by all who are saved until all are made equal and know each other. End of quote. Now, remember, the Ogdoad is, generally speaking, the eighth astronomical sphere, that of the fixed stars, which is the boundary between the material and immaterial realms. Outside the stars, we find the Logos in Clement's system, or the Nous in any traditional Platonist or Aristotelian system of thought. Not that these realities occupy space and time, but insofar as they are anywhere, they are outside of the physical cosmos. We have Clement on record at, for example, Stromates II, as also emphasizing the importance, spiritually, of the Ogdoad, although he calls it the Decad. See the last episode for the arithmological games he's playing here, it's clear that, anyway, he's talking about what is normally called the Ogduad, but making it into a ten, because that's even more Pythagorean. And it's also clear that for Clement, there is some esoteric teaching to do with the importance of the Ogduad stroke decad for human spiritual evolution. Now, do we want to read our Stromates passages about this level of reality in parallel with the excerpts in this context? If we do, the implication is that the Gnostic soul can leave his body, ascend through the spheres, and approach the higher realities directly. We see why this implication would need to be expressed in a circumspect way. St. Paul is allowed to do that kind of thing, but normal proto-Orthodox Christians are not. And I do think that this is what is going on here in Clement. We read in Stromate's Book 4 of a time when, quote, the soul, having gone up beyond the realm of coming to be, Genesis, is by herself and in communion with the forms. She becomes like an angel and is with Christ. End of quote. So the first part of this statement is textbook Middle Platonism, and the second part is deeply Christian. Both are to be read at the same time, of course. But there isn't really any whiff of the postmortem about this. We seem to be discussing the ascent of the soul of a living Gnostic Christian. And there are many other passages in the Stromates which can be read this way. If we turn to the Eclogai Propheticae, we get a very strong indication that yes, we do want to read the other Clement as a key for understanding the esoteric Clement in the Stromates. At Eclogues 57.4, we are told of Quote, those who have been perfected from among humans, angels, archangels, to the first created nature of the angels, end of quote, that last bit being the protectists themselves, 
And the following passage gives even greater detail to this process. Quoting in Bukur's translation, For those among humans who start being transformed into angels are instructed by the angels for a thousand years in order to be promoted to perfection. Then the instructors are translated into archangelic authority, while those who have received instruction will in turn instruct those among humans who are transformed into angels. Thereupon, they are at the specified period promoted into the proper angelic state of the body. End of quote. In other words, human beings are at the lowest rung in a chain of upward transformation. We can become angels, and then the angels who are instructing us can become archangels, but then from angels, we can move up the hierarchy again, and so on. What happens at the highest level, that of the protoctists, is, I think, left mysterious in Clement. Bukur argues in a 2007 article based on Eklogai 56.5 that the protoctists themselves can be kind of promoted out of their role as providential overseers and archontes of the angels, and then they sort of get furloughed and just enjoy eternal contemplation in God, and this may well be what Clement envisions. But for my part, I think Clement's language about the exact nature of the protectists, the logos, their relationship to each other, and their relationship to God the Father, always remains ambiguous, perhaps for reasons of esotericism, but perhaps also for the perfectly valid reason that, as Clement tells us in the Stromates, these highest matters of reality are formally ineffable. So in a sense, the final phase of the endgame kind of dissolves into a question mark. Nevertheless, the goal is perfectly clear. Becoming a protectist, dwelling among the forms, and contemplating God face to face. And it's also clear, to me reading Clement as an esoteric author who's being sneaky with how he comes out and says stuff, so there is admittedly a lot of hardcore interpretation going on here, it's clear to me at least that Clement sees this process of step-by-step -step angelification or angelomorphication as something which can be pursued while still alive and in the body. For a scholarly voice who supports this reading more or less, see the works of Bukur in the bibliography to this episode. Now, there are three more points I'd like to make in this final stage of the episode. First point, it has to be said that we've relied heavily on the Eklogai, and to be fair, just a few passages from the Eklogai, and on an equally sparse set of passages from the excerpts of Theodotus, to read a doctrine of angelomorphic transformation into Clement. Here we're basically following the work most recently of Bogdan Bukur, but many earlier scholars, notably Mea, have noticed that for every far-out doctrine that we find in these two troublesome texts, we can and do find corroborations in the stromates. So this stuff is definitely possible to find in the stromates, scattered, which is exactly how Clement tells us we will find it, right? Check the notes of this episode for many stromatic parallels, which we have not been mentioning as we've been going along because we just didn't want to clutter up the episode with millions of references. This stuff is definitely possibly present esoterically in the stromates, if that makes sense. It does make sense, but you have to maybe stop and think about it. I should say here that I find Bukur's overarching approach highly convincing, while I find some details of his arguments either 
sloppily cited or perhaps over-argued based on the evidence. Nevertheless, listeners who want a really strong dose of the Clementine Angelomorphic Ascent will want to read his book Angelomorphic Pneumatology and the articles listed in the bibliography to this episode. Even if he is a bit too sure that he has discovered Clement's system, in quotes, he's definitely right that Clement is very, very interested in what those scriptural passages about becoming like angels might mean, and with his cosmic hypercosmic hierarchy of spiritual entities being both scripturally sound and platonistically satisfying, we have every reason to think that Clement will have at the very least theorized something like the celestial chains of evolution toward God by way of angelic intermediaries that we've just laid out. Whether or not this was an inner teaching of the elders, as some think, or perhaps a piece of speculative research theology on Clement's part, kind of built from all the different strands of his thought and all the background influences that went into making him as a thinker, that's another question, and I'm not going to even attempt to answer it. But I will say, though, that I think we have strong evidence that Clement treats these matters as esoteric, inner teachings of Christianity. Even if he doesn't think this is definitely exactly how spiritual evolution works, he thinks that even speculating about these matters is only for the elite ranks of the Gnostics, not for the ordinary Christians. And thus he alludes to it in all manner of devious ways here and there in the Stromates. This is dangerous stuff, in other words. I think that the excerpts and the eclogues, whether or not they originally formed part of the Hypotipuses, or whatever their origin was, see our special episode on Clement's texts for some of the debates here. Whatever they are, they're most naturally to be read as esoteric works of Clement. Not publicly esoteric works like the Stromates, which are meant to hide in plain sight, but writings which really were for a small select audience. We're lucky, in fact, to possess them at all, because probably we shouldn't have them. <laughs> Good. Point number two. Once and for all, is this angelic transformation something that happens after you die, or is it something which the Gnostic can do during his lifetime? In other words, can the Gnostic turn into something like an angel? Clement is quite happy to slip into a Platonizing mode of speech, fully Christian at the same time, where the process of divinization is an ongoing concern, and angelification or angelomorphication is something that happens to living people. Of the living Gnostics, Clement says, quote, they have been named gods, being destined to be enthroned together with the other gods that have been given the first rank by the Savior, end of quote. In other words, the Gnostics are going to be enthroned with the Protectists, sitting with them, but they are already named gods. I think, however, that we're not entitled to state exactly how Clement envisions this angelomorphic progression as a lived experience, or at least I don't feel prepared to make a strong statement in this regard. In our Eclogues passage cited earlier, he describes it as a cycle of metempsychosis occurring across eons of time, cyclical in nature, a kind of evolution of spirits into higher and higher forms, converging, perhaps asymptotically, on God. But at other times, he seems to hint at a lived ascent and possible face-to-face -face encounter of the Gnostic with God. There are other aspects of Clement's angelology, incidentally, in the Stromates, which are awfully redolent both of Platonist ideas of philosophic ascent and, for example, 
the Sethian Apocalypse of John or other Platonizing Christian texts where we have accounts of visionary ascents, visionary apocalyptic narratives told in the first person. Stromatase 4 tells us of angels who are assigned to guarding the way of ascent, making sure that only the Gnostic souls who have separated themselves from the body are allowed to pass on their way toward the Ogdoad. Now, if a soul is traveling up through the heavens, surely it's already separated itself from the body, but no, apparently not. So this can't really just refer to dead people. This must refer to special souls, right, who've made some effort and sort of entered into a certain state which allows them to pass. And these angels must be shown a symbolon, a token. Here we have the celestial customs control, so familiar from Jewish and Gnostic apocalyptic literature, even down to the need for a token or password. And incidentally, the reference earlier to the soul, or rather the spiritual elements of the soul being wrapped in the name of God, I think can also be read as a kind of password-like motif. Now, I doubt Clement is thinking of a ritualized ascent practice here. And I doubt that the symbolon in question is actually something like the Clementine Gnostic is holding in his hand while he makes an ascent ritual practice, a kind of magic passkey or talisman or something. But it is striking that these passages use the very same terminology as texts like the so-called Mithras Liturgy and others, which are most likely referring to some kind of ritualized practice of cosmic ascent, and where the practitioner, we may speculate, probably was holding a talisman or two in their hand, or certainly had engraved some very powerful words on their mind, if not on a bit of metal or whatever. Nevertheless, there are human souls making this ascent, and angel guardians barring the way to the unworthy. Are we to assume that all such ascending souls are souls of the dead, that just doesn't make sense, as we mentioned. And anyway, all the dead are supposed to be lying in the ground awaiting the resurrection. Or are these the souls of Gnostic Christian ascetics, perhaps, the purity of whose life has freed them from their gross bodies? Are they able to look at God face to face in an angelic form, as Clement sometimes hints? Will the Gnostic then have become, if only for a metaphysical moment, a protoctist, or be enthroned together with the protoctists? Or am I reading this too late Platonistically? I'm happy to leave the question open, and I invite listeners to explore the matter for themselves. The quest is very rewarding. Our third and final point about Clement here is a nice point on which to take leave of the great Alexandrian thinker. As we've noted previously, Clement seems to indicate that the process of salvation is ultimately universal, that even the damned will eventually be saved. Apocatastasis for Clement is thus not, or not only, God's remaking of the world after the final end of history. It is also an ongoing process of spiritual evolution. And this is exactly what we see if we look at his spiritual hierarchy, which at its lowest levels has angels instructing humans so that they can be hoovered up after a thousand years and turned into angels, which then allows the angelic instructors to ascend to being archangels and so on. This process logically must surely result in everyone eventually after eons and eons becoming protectists. And this would follow perhaps from the strong aspect of Clement's thought, which emphasizes God's incalculable goodness and generosity and perfect justice. It would not go down well with a church 
increasingly obsessed with the punishments in store for anyone they disagreed with. That's me putting a bad light on it, but you take the point. Universal salvation is heresy. But we seem to see it in Clement, and we even seem to see a kind of spiritual hierarchical mechanism through which it occurs. And we shall encounter universal salvation again in the thought of the next great Christian esotericist from Alexandria, Origen, for whom his enemies within the church said even the devil himself would eventually be saved. We hope you have enjoyed our series on Clement of Alexandria, a pioneer of esoteric Christianity. What has been missing from these episodes on Clement is his tone. He comes across as one of those very rare individuals who's strongly elitist in a certain way, but he isn't a dick about it. He really is full of love and compassion and the desire to share the bounties of the revealed truth as he sees it with as many people as he can, while also exploring deeper aspects of belief and experience with the few people who he thinks will get it. And he developed some groundbreaking ways of conveying all this in literary form, including a radical form of esoteric open writing. He is a consummate exemplar of the Western esoteric tradition, and a thinker who deserves to be far, far better known. Though, of course, the paradox here is that he doesn't wish the works we've been just concentrating on to be better known. In fact, if he were here, he would probably tell me to shut up about the mysteries. However, I comfort myself with the idea that in reading Clement as an esoteric writer in the course of these episodes, we've probably missed the deepest mysteries anyway. Either way, we apologize to Clement and take grateful leave of him now. Stay esoteric.